Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to 3CR. You've tuned in to Freedom of Species, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. This program is broadcast from 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia, and we're live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR and Freedom of Species websites and iTunes. And thanks for tuning in. My name is Andy Medic, and today is my first show hosting, so please be gentle. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> So today we're playing a talk titled The Feral Amongst Us by Fiona proben Rapsi. Fiona was speaking at the Bundanon Festival about 10 months ago. Now in that talk, Fiona makes five propositions regarding the ethical and moral status of feral animals in Australia. Her final proposition is that feral animals are a big distraction from the institutionalised violence and environmental impacts of animal agriculture. Fiona is from the School of Humanities and Social Inquiry in the University of Wollongong. She's also the chair of the Australasian Animal Studies Association, pronounced ESA. Then we'll have a little discussion about that and a tune or two. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. Okay, so I have five propositions on ferals, five things that I want to say about ferals. But before I get to them, I'd like to ask you, the audience, about your own relationships with animals. So can I get a show of hands from the audience? Uh, how many of you have a companion species or a pet? So quite a few. Keep your hand up if the quality of life that your pet leads is important to you. Yeah, okay, great. So now put your hand up or keep your hand up if, uh, if you believe that our relationships with animals in general could be better than they currently are. So that they could, all of them could be better than they currently are. Okay, great. Now the reason I'm asking you this is because in animal studies scholarship uh, generally, we tend to argue that the relationships that we form with our pets are a foundation for positive relationships and attitudes towards animals in general. Those who form attachments with pets 
who appreciate their pets as individuals with personalities and all that that entails are also more likely to feel uncomfortable with animal cruelty. That's why you'll often see animal advocacy groups refer to pets as a benchmark for better relations with animals. The comparison with pets is supposed to elevate and enhance our moral perceptions of the cruelty around us. And yet, there is this persistent and profound disconnect between how much we respect and value the animals that are our companions or our pets and those that are treated as mere animal machines, kept in appalling conditions, often in factory farms, for the purposes of making cheap meat. Now, this disconnect between how we think of our pets and love our pets on the one hand and how we mistreat animals in agriculture on the other hand, animals who are just as likely to be persons like our pets, is really puzzling. This disconnect is really puzzling. And it's partly explained within animal studies scholarship by the powerful role that categories play in how we relate to animals. So categorised, for instance, as a pet, an animal has legal protections against cruelty. Categorised as livestock, an animal is subject to the cruelties that come with being seen as edible. Classified as feral, an animal is subject to even greater cruelties associated with being seen as exterminable. Now, this brings me to my first proposition on ferals. This is that animals, Australian animals, Australian feral animals, live and die between these categories, between the wild, between pet, between livestock, these three big categories in which we find animals. Feral animals sit between all those categories. And they sit in this ethical vacuum that's that's bordered by, on the one hand, extraordinary violence and also this romance of the escapee, the one who escapes. Now, feral animals have exceeded and they've also escaped from the domesticated sphere in which humans generally keep them. They've gone from being best friend to traitor to enemy. And in doing this, they meet the full force and the full brunt of a human sense of having been rejected. Feral pigs, donkeys, horses, rabbits, camels have gone, from, have gone beyond the category of livestock, and in doing so they have defied human use and human control. All feral animals show resilience, intelligence, self-organisation, and an extraordinary capacity to evade human captivity and control. All of these things are elements that remind us, or, or actually importantly contradict the belief that livestock exist only to serve us, only to be used by us and only to obey us. Going feral, in fact, they remind us that animals are neither machines nor docile objects. They are thinking and escaping beings. And as such, they help us to define the injustice of factory farming just a little bit better. But perhaps this is also why they are so hated. They are an uncomfortable reminder that animals are not actually happy meat. This brings me to my second proposition on ferals. 
The word feral means killable and ungrievable. Let's explore this proposition a bit further. So once the dog, for instance, is outside of the category of pet, or the pig or donkey is outside of the category of livestock, they've lost their place, they've lost their purpose, their allegiance to human society, and they have slipped into a category of the killable, into a a state of ethical nothingness. The violence that is unleashed on feral animals is extraordinary. It is well beyond the ordinary institutionalised violence that we regularly unleash on animals, particularly the 100 million sheep and cattle that currently reside in Australia. Feral violence involves poisons such as 1080, most commonly used for wild dogs, feral pigs, foxes, but also for cats and rabbits, as in Queensland, and possums in New Zealand. Secondary poisoning associated with 1080 affects pet dogs, cattle, sheep, wallabies, deer, and any of the animals that may feed on the dead bodies of those uh, subjected to the primary poison. Death takes hours. Animals suffer grotesque, cruel deaths. 1080 is banned in many countries and is highly restricted in others. In Australia and New Zealand, it is sometimes dropped on wide areas of land by helicopter with predictable hellish results. Clive Marks, who was previously head of the Victorian government's vertebrate pest research department, has described pest control in Australia as, quote, caught in an innovation death spiral, largely because of the suffering, the suffering of pest animals has not been valued or considered a sufficient priority to warrant appropriate investment in better approaches. This phrase, innovation death spiral, I think is, is quite remarkable. According to Clive Marks, then, animal welfare and conservation biology are locked in conflict over this issue. Animal welfare concerns simply vanish when the word feral appears. Standards could not be any lower in terms of animal welfare when it comes to ferals. This brings me to my third proposition on ferals, which is this. Ferals do not recognise themselves by that name. Jacques Derrida argues in a now famous essay called The Animal That Therefore I Am, More to Follow, he argues that the word animal is an example of the human war waged against other species. This war takes two forms. Firstly, we have mass extinctions. Secondly, we have the mass overproduction of industrialised livestock animals. He suggests that the word animal predicts this calamity because this word animal does two things. Firstly, it collapses all of their differences into one mass. Everyone from the oyster to the elephant is imprisoned by this single word, animal. It diminishes all their complexity and difference into this catch-all term, this everything term. The word animal does a second thing. It also allows humans to imagine that they themselves are above and beyond, separate, superior, with all that this implies, both morally and ethically. The word animal makes it possible to say that someone is only an animal, with all that that implies, morally and ethically. If we add the word feral to the word animal, 
then it's as if we've, we've added a no one to a nothing to an everything. Together, these two words, feral and animal, manage to double the insult, double the vulnerability and double the violence. And yet, to get back to my proposition, feral anim- just as animals do not recognise themselves by the name animal because it is our name for them, ferals also do not recognise their status as killable or as ungrievable. We know this because they are out there busily surviving, conducting complex social lives, weaving in and out of human habitation, interacting sometimes violently with other species, changing themselves and changing others. In the case of dingoes, for instance, now thought by some to be a domesticated dog that went feral between four and 6,000 years ago, their involvement with feral dogs continues in a way that deeply frustrates conservation biologists and also dingo advocates, who in particular want pure specimens, who want to see dingoes choose other dingoes to mate with, not Labradors or cattle dogs. The queer mixing of dingo with dog leads conservation biologists to suggest that dingoes are going extinct through impure breeding. But this idea is false. Take the idea of purity out of the picture and they are not going extinct. They are making do. They are making choices. But in the name of purity, in the name of the pure dingo, wild dogs and feral dogs are being shot, baited and eradicated in unacceptably cruel ways. The dingo does not see herself as killable, nor her own pups, her own hybrid pups, as living embodiments of her species' extinction. We should, I think, be very wary of the tendency to see animals only as examples of a whole species. This makes them interchangeable, ultimately, and it also makes them vulnerable to pronouncements on purity. Conservation biologists see a whole species, they see a whole category. A dingo sees an opportunity, a mate, a litter, a social life and a persistence. This brings me to Proposition 4, which is this. The feral reminds us that the language of species is entangled with the language of race. The categories into which animals are made to fit are both cultural and scientific simultaneously. When the father of taxonomy, Carl Linnaeus, separated and sorted the natural world into kingdoms and species, he also included humans divided by race. In the first edition of Systema Natura, we find white Europeans, red Americans, brown Asians and black Africans. By the 10th edition, he starts to ascribe racial temperaments to these groups, with white Europeans somehow displaying the most favourable characteristics. The point here is that species and race and gender, for that matter, are related taxonomies. They have always been entangled. They share the good and the bad effects of taxonomic logic. All categories produce ferals, persons who do not fit in to an imagined norm, people who are in between people who are mixed. We have ferals because we have this stubborn insistence on categorical thinking. 
the language of species purity and, the, and a fear of mixing that it implies, a fear of invasion, of menace, of genetic swamping. This sort of language is mobilised regularly and repeatedly in conservation biology, surrounding dingoes in particular. This rhetoric sticks to bodies, all bodies. It keeps the language of eugenics in circulation, ready to reattach itself to human bodies as well. It is not acceptable to speak of purity in terms of human populations. We know the history of that thinking. So we should know what happens when we speak about animals in these terms too. This brings me to my last proposition, which is actually my favourite one. See how you go with this. <coughs> proposition five. Ferals are a big distraction from the violence of animal agriculture. Feral animals are violently eradicated in the name of two dominant principles. Firstly, we kill them in the name of protecting biodiversity. This is the cats are eating our natives sort of argument. Secondly, we kill them in the name of the sustainability of animal agriculture. As you probably are aware, sustainability is often used in a very vague way by animal agriculture because animal agriculture and sustainability are actually incompatible. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, their 2009 report on the environmental impacts of the livestock sector indicates that globally, livestock contributes to 18% of global warming, a larger contribution than the entire transportation sector. Animal agriculture represents the largest of all anthropogenic land uses, and it's a key player in increasing water use, water depletion, and water uh, depletion and pollution. So it takes 15,000 litres of water to make one kilogram of steak. You, you're probably already aware of this. So eating that one kilogram of, of beef is like leaving all the taps on in your house for two days straight. The livestock industry in Australia is vast and politically active. Animal agriculture, specifically beef and sheep, that beef and sheep farming accounts for 52% of Australia's landmass. We currently have around 29 million cattle and 75 million sheep. That's 100 million hard-hoofed, belching, farting ruminants walking over 52% of the deforested landmass of Australia. Now compare this impact to the number of feral animals and they are a minuscule part of the problem. A minuscule part of the problem of water pollution, water depletion, water use, air pollution, land degradation, biodiversity, and habitat loss. So when thousands of feral camels are culled by shotgun in the name of climate change action to reduce methane emissions, but at the same time, cattle and sheep are forced to produce more and more offspring Surely we have to say that something is drastically out of balance here. Sure, feral camels affect waterways, they pollute them with waste, they eat native flora, and they also contribute to climate change through their methane and their waste. But feral camels are vastly outnumbered by sheep and cattle. 
killing feral animals in the name of sustainability has all the appearance of doing something about climate change, but in reality it leaves the main issue of animal agriculture completely untouched. Ferals are a great distraction. They raise hackles. They transgress our fences. They transgress our ways of thinking. And the violence that we unleash upon them is spectacular. And it is unhinged from every usual ethical constraint. They are the perfect distraction. Feral animals rarely have advocates. They certainly don't have lobbyists in parliaments. They're easy to demonise and killing them we seem to be able to claim that we are dealing with habitat loss, biodiversity loss and sustainability, while at the very same time we are breeding more and more cattle and sheep. Ferals should not be made responsible for this. We should. Thank you. That was Dr Fiona proben Rapsi with that extraordinary talk on the use of language surrounding feral animals and what that actually means. And we'll be returning um, shortly after a tune um, with Emma, who's with me today, and we'll be having a bit of a conversation about some of the points that she raised. And I think it's appropriate that um, the song that I've chosen for today has something to do with feral animals, perhaps, um, and it is from The Cure, The Love Cats. Okay, that was the the cure um, with the love cats. Um, welcome back to Freedom of Species here on Three CR, and I have with me in the studio Emma Townsend, who is guiding me through this with consummate ease. She's expert. <laughs> Not really. I'm here to um, uh, show Andy how to use the technical equipment, which is um, I'm still trying to master, but we'll get through it. <laughs> um, and anyone who knows me well knows that. Um, uh, all this sort of equipment, um, computers, etc., and I are sworn enemies. So if something's going to go wrong, it's going to be me that does it. Okay. <laughs> Great job. Now, I love the choice of song, Andy, Love Cats, because you've got to love them, even though they're the latest to be demonised as, um, you know, the feral to be gotten rid of in this war on, on cats. Yeah, absolutely. And look, one of the things that I was, if I, I found really fascinating about that, talk from um, Fiona Proven Rapsi was that, that this whole thing about the use of language was it's, it's extraordinary and some of the things that I actually got out of that were how that language then affects the conversations that we have surrounding you know and these different animals and, and our perceptions of them you know like where something an animal can, becomes an acceptable part of our society or it suddenly becomes pushed to the outskirts of society, depending on the situation and the language used to describe it. And one of those things are cats and dogs, for instance. You know, we, they become wild dogs, you know, and, and it has the connotations that everything is okay if we, we kill them. You know, it, it, it allows us to, to separate them from the yeah, rest of society. Yeah. That's exactly what I, what I find fascinating about this talk is that we're, we're really unconscious as to the power of language. And when it comes to the architecture of language in this arena of um, conservation, it really is riddled with the design 
of the outcome being we're going to kill them. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah feral, vermin. Um, and it's, it's, it, this is very important and purposeful, this language, isn't it? And I guess what really springs to mind for me of how important it is for the powers that be is that the case in being with um, the pest control order in New South Wales um, that Sydney Fox Rescue is actually running a campaign called Running Out of Time Against This Pest Control Order. Now, Sydney Fox Rescue have been doing an amazing job, as you know, of rehabilitating injured foxes. So people from all over the community, including farmers, even hunters, have brought kits, basically, baby foxes that have been um, injured for them to rehabilitate, and they desex them, they foster them out and get a permit so people can can basically keep them and look after them so they're not being returned into the wild mm. you know so it's a, the thing is that the new south wales government they want to put a lid on this because it actually puts compassion out there it, it allows people to be compassionate against injured foxes and they want to put a lid on this because oh, this absolutely. is kind of a that, that's a because that, that's a dangerous proposition because once we allow that to happen with something like foxes which are an introduced invasive vertebrate that has such a um, you know, a reputation of being, you know, this horrible animal that is out there to destroy farmers' livelihoods. You know, there's the, the, the animal agriculture industry has spent a lot of time and a lot of money and, and, you know, telling people that foxes are terrible, you know, like lock up your chickens, you know, because one fox is going to get in and eradicate your entire chicken population, you know. And, mm. and then we have situations with fox bounties and stuff like that that go on in Victoria and other, other states, you know. Mm. It's... You can't. You have a situation where, if you allow that to become public knowledge, the things you've just described, mm. that tears down that whole infrastructure that they've set up over a period of time. That these are our enemies, and and one of the problems that this is an obfuscation as well, because you know, these are animals that we brought here. We released them out into into the wild here. You know, we we had this outmoded English sort of thing of tally ho, let's go on the fox hunt. You know, and and. Mm. We created this situation and and we need to, therefore, we have a moral responsibility to ensure we find the best solution to these problems. It is interesting because it's so entrenched, isn't it? The power of of language really keeps us unconscious to the the fact that, hang on, um, we need to bring about, like people need, there's a social licence in question here, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's, um, it's, it's very powerful. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think it's also important to note that because this is what, and, and I love this part of the discussion as well. Um, when 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 Fiona talked about you know what we deem as acceptable species and what we don't deem as acceptable species and, and how we separate that, it's important to note that all species of farmed animals in Australia are not native. You know, it, these these species of cattle and sheep weren't here. You know, when Captain Cook arrived or the first fleet arrived, you know, they, they weren't around. We introduced them here. You know, they're not native and they can be considered invasive vertebrates. And, and then she, how she brings that and ties that back to the destruction of the environment and that these so-called pest species that we keep talking about and eradicating, the effects on the environment are so minuscule in comparison to what we're doing with farmed animals and animal agriculture. Yeah, it's a, it's a big distraction, as she said, it's really interesting how it um, – so basically we, they're, they're feral and they're vermin if they get in the way of agriculture or, interestingly enough, Andy, is that it, 
they're also threatening species. So if, even the language, let's go a bit further, um, threatened species, that creates an mm. urgency, doesn't it? Oh, this, this is threatened. Mm. So urgent, something must be done about this fragile species. Now, in many respects, there's so many things to be deconstructed there because uh, as we know, I know Arian Wallach, that wonderful ecologist that does a lot of good work with the Dingo for Biodiversity Project, um, said, you know, that there are snakes, native snakes that have um, adapted to be able to eat the cane toad in a, perp- in, a, in a way that they know not to eat or birds know not to eat that poisonous part. Like in one respect, one thing to note is that Mother Nature isn't extremely fragile, you know, we were the only we're mm. the human species, the only, you know, we, we're the only ones that can do anything about it, you know, and rescue them and save them. But also in turn that, well, okay, they're not threatened, but also that, you know, it's kind of, it's also been shown as a noble thing, hasn't it? It's a, the it no, has. The noble thing of uh, protecting a species and giving money to an organisation that might be, acting on behalf of a particular species and yet they're killing off all these other species and we've been doing this for years and years and years and years and years and it hasn't worked and those species are still on the declining. Well, absolutely. And and, and when we were talking beforehand, I I think we we brought up the point of... um, you know how we view them and and the different environments that they're in as well and if you take possums for instance i mean everyone this nobility thing that you were talking about you know we, we look at the, the the baby ringtail possum and you know we have them on stamps and on coins and all whatever we have and everyone looks at them and goes oh that wonderful yes we've got to protect these natives they're fragile etc etc yet possums that live somewhere for instance like in albert park are seen as pests to be eradicated yeah, they were here before us. We were the pest that came in and we built houses surrounding Albert Park Lake. And suddenly these animals are not, a, you know, they're not a friendly sort of cuddly thing anymore. They're nuisances that get in our roofs and fight and, and, and urinate and stuff like that, you know. And so we employ people to come and eradicate them, to get rid of them. It's, it, this total disconnect astounds me, you know. Like we, we abrogate our responsibilities towards the natural environment. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting. It really is, um, you know, conversation uh, conversations at uh, presentations such as Fiona's done is really gets us to really look at things through different lenses and turn everything on its head and say, well, hang on, who are the pest species we are, <laughs> really, and um, question, you know, what species we're demonising, but. Um, yeah, Andy, it's fascinating. It, whenever this conversation comes up, it really feels like the narrative's like a an adult Dr. Seuss novel, isn't it? It, it gets to be very confusing because people are so um, indoctrinated with with the language in itself. So it's great to let's question what we're calling feral and vermin. And hey, I've used ratsack in the past. I cringe at the thought of it now, but we've got to question these things. Well, why mm. am I? Hang on. Is there another way here? I know that around my house I plant a lot of mint and, you know, close up the house. And and I tell you what, planting peppermint and mint everywhere, I haven't had any little, you know, visiting mice or rodent issues. I read that the other day and I was was quite astounded actually. I'd never heard of that before. But I remember when you brought it up again, I remembered Mm. that's what my mum used to do when when we grew up in the house we grew up in in New South Wales. We always had mint growing around the house. 
Yeah. And, and she made a point of actually getting some of the wild native mints that you had as well because we, we grew up on the back of um, a, a, well, a small mountain called President's Hill and, and it was growing up there and she would go up there and take cuttings and bring it back and plant this stuff around the house. And we never had rats or mice in our house. Yeah. And it just, it just brought back that memory. I said, of course, you know, this is something that we've known yep. for a long time. But we've just decided to go down this whole path of no, we're this, we're humans, we're above everyone else and everything else, and we can just kill these animals yeah, just indiscriminately. Kill things that we don't want to be there, and it's not. We've really got to question that language, and so it's great today. Show has show has really kind of um, hmm. lifted the veil on that. We could go on about this forever. Oh, for a long time. I, I think. But we do have um, another subject we're going to talk about, which is um, greyhounds. And we're coming up shortly. There's a few things that have happened and been going on there. So leading into that, I'd like to play another song, if I can, something by the Foves. And because it's greyhounds, um, this is Dogs Are The Best People. You're back on Freedom of Species um, at the 3CR. And I did warn you that technology and I were sworn enemies. Um, I completely forgot to turn the volume up. So if you missed the start of that song, I'm terribly sorry. That was the Foves. Dogs are the best people. And what a wonderful song that is and leads us into, it's a nice segue into some things that have been happening in the greyhound industry in Victoria of late. Um, one of the key points here is that, um, and I'd just like to say that this is a, a wonderful development to start with, the first thing that happened was that the Surf Coast Shire, where, um, where I live, actually knocked back an application for a gentleman to uh, start a breeding facility with 60 dogs, and, and which was a wonderful development for them to knock that back. And Surf Coast Shire has, has taken the lead in a lot of animal welfare issues. When was that, Andy? When? It was about uh, three and a half weeks, maybe okay. four weeks ago now. Um and they knocked it back on, on planning grounds, which is the, the key thing about this whole discussion we're about to have on, on items that are included in the Planning and Environment Act 1987. They knocked it back on, one of which was noise abatement um, and the other one was waste disposal. Um, now, it's worth noting that this particular gentleman in his application had for three years been keeping dogs and breeding them there, greyhounds, without a permit. And the reason that it came to light was that his neighbour had tried to... Um, you know, get him to take steps to abate the noise that these dogs were making um, to no avail. And at the end of it, he'd just been at the end of his tether and actually made a complaint with council, then investigated, et cetera, et cetera, and it went from there and, and snowballed. But the, 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 running hot on the heels of that, and what a lot of people might not be aware of, is the Victorian government have issued a, a discussion paper um, which is about proposed changes to the planning requirements for greyhound facilities. Now, some key points to, to notice about that are that on the service, the front page of this document appears to want to pave the way for a ramping up of the industry in Victoria by deliberately excluding local councils from the planning permit process because it actually has a three-tier system, um, the first of which is the tier one where no permit is required at all, the second tier where no permit is required if the objectives and performance measures are met that are outlined in the guidelines in the document, 
and uh, a permit required for a certain number of dogs, which is Tier 3. Now, a further examination of those guidelines referred to appear to be what an attempt to meet community and standards and council concerns over what are regarded as strictly planning matters, and that is things like visual appearances, setbacks for noise abatement and number of dogs per hectare. And I do stress that I haven't had time to completely examine all the documents all the way through, um, but given my stance on the industry, um, I think everyone's well aware that I have some concerns immediately about some of those guidelines. Uh, the proposed guidelines, and, and, and these are some of them, I've got them written down here, and if you don't mind, I'll just read straight through them. Um, the proposed guidelines were drafted, if the information contained is correct, without the involvement of any animal welfare or advocacy organisations. Not even the RSPCA, which is considered by the government to be the peak body in this regard, were consulted. As a result, um, the the changes only concern themselves with matters that are part of the everyday use of an individual council's planning department, and that is that planning applications are considered under the Planning Environment Act 1987. Now, the, the, the people involved in, in this document are the Department of Justice and Regulation, the Department of Economic Development, Jobs, Transport and Resources, the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, Delwip, and Greyhound Racing Victoria. And you can see from that list of people that no one from animal welfare or advocacy was involved. Now, the problem with both the Act and these changes are is that they both don't deliberately stop councils from considering animal welfare in a planning application. They're just deliberately left out. And that has caused some planning departments to believe that they are exempt from animal welfare issues, are exempt from or not allowed to be considered uh, in a planning application. They can, they just choose not to. By excluding animal welfare requirements from the Planning Act, doesn't mean a council can't consider them. They can choose, they just choose not to. It doesn't state in the Planning Environment Act 1987 that animal welfare issues are not to be considered. Okay. It, it just doesn't list them as something to be considered. That f- must be considered, yeah. Yeah, yes, exactly, okay. yeah. And, and running alongside of that, you have POCTA, the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. So a council can could and should look at POCTA when having an application such as a greyhound breeding facility come up. They should refer to POCTA and look at the situations that are occurring with that and, and the restrictions and the um, the given situations that are listed under the Act that exclude you know, approval of, of, of certain industries and certain um, animal acts, you know, like, like animal welfare conditions. So they need to look at that and they should be doing that and they're not. Right. So these gui- these new guidelines that you're talking about, they've actually just been drawn up as a response to the banning of greyhounds in New South Wales. But they they sound like, okay, let's quickly um, change a few things around so we can make as much money as possible until um, in, impending uh, an impending ban here may happen. Well, that's right. right. It looks like, to all intents and purposes, it looks like a, a, a beefing up, if you like, of of um, regulation, you know, surrounding the industry so far as approving breeding facilities and training facilities is concerned. I mean, one of the things, if you look at Tier 1, which is no permit required, it, it states here, keeping and training less than three racing dogs in a rural living zone, a green wedge zone, a rural conservation zone, or less than six dogs in those zones, or including a farming zone or a rural activity zone, would not require a permit and does not need to meet the objectives or the permit measures that are outlined in the guidelines. 
Wow, so it's kind of easier again, for them. Yeah, again, we come to back to our earlier point of Greyhound. language. <laughs> you see, um, now there are a number of other things that are going on with that, and, and the, another thing that concerns me is that the fact that no animal welfare or advocacy groups were part of the review, yet the governing body GRV were, leads to a lot of concern because industry self-regulation is always a recipe for disaster. It inevitably leads to, leads to violations of codes of practice, cruelty laws, and with no punishment. We only have to look at the live export trade to see how that works. And further, if we're to believe that these changes are a good move, and I personally believe that only a complete industry ban is the only acceptable recommendation, I question whether they'll be made retrospective and be forced upon current facilities. Because, And that's an important thing, because we do have facilities in Victoria where you have people who have up to 200 dogs. We have some of the largest breeding and training facilities in Australia in this state, and they've been in operation for a number of years. So it's it's if... If these changes are to be made retrospective and forced upon these these facilities that already operate, what's going to be the kickback from these people? They're going to scream. If this is going to cost them a lot of money, they're going to scream very, very loudly. Okay. So what I would get people to do, now they are calling for submissions. You can make your submissions online and they will be uh, must be received by 5pm on the 7th of October. And you can make them to, I have that here somewhere. You can um, send that to uh, planning, planning.systems at Delwip. I think that's the one. No, if you have any questions, that is. You can contact planning.systems at delwipvic.gov.au. And I have the front page of this somewhere. I've shuffled things around. I'll come back to that for you where you can send that submission. Well, that's good to know about because unless... You... Oh, yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. The one I've just read out is the one. Please complete this form and make a submission to Delve about the changes. Yeah, and that's where you send it to. And we'll put a link on the podcast page for yeah. today's show. So, so I, can... I, again, apologies for my little shuffling around there. I um, think it's really good to know about submission dates with things like this because a lot of people leave it up to, you know, fantastic organisations to do this on behalf of us, whereas individuals can send in submissions. mm for these issues so that's great thanks Sandy. okay no problem so we, look we've got a little bit of time left okay okay so um i believe that you have um uh, a number you, of news items couple, here look, this one is a couple of a couple of weeks old from humane society international but it kind of ties into fiona's talk um hsi was appalled after being informed that the victorian government is considering the reintroduction of a wild dog bounty uh, just over a year after the same labor government seized the program Dingoes are listed as threatened under Victoria's Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act 1988 and as they will be indiscriminately killed through any shooting program, HSI has written to the Minister for Agriculture, Jala Pulford, seeking confirmation that there is no intention of reinstating this bounty. And a quote from HSI Evan Quartermain, over the four years before the ban, more than 2,000 dogs were shot in Victoria and their scalps handed in for $200,000 of publicly funded bounties. But how do we know they were so-called wild dogs and not dingoes? The latest research shows determining purity in the field borders on impossible. So there were undoubtedly many dingoes shot for government incentives in the only state they are listed as a threatened species. Shooting has been found to be an ineffective dog control measure and inappropriate for reducing populations over extensive areas. 
Research also suggests that dog control can be counterproductive for stock predation with intact dingo packs exhibiting behavioural behavioural boundaries that limit such impacts. When packs are fractured through shooting, loss of social cohesion leads to more opportunistic feeding patterns, meaning an increased dog control could actually be economically detrimental for pastoralists as well. Furthermore, a growing body of evidence shows that dingo dog hybrids share many important aspects of dingo social behaviour, such as pack formation and feeding habits. And HSI continues to argue that as hybrids are performing the same ecological role as dingoes, they should be considered equally as important to conserve in Australian ecosystems. Dingoes are important predators on feral cats and foxes. The first step is treating hybrid dingoes as wildlife instead of pest animals and avoiding compounding the pressures on them through programs such as wild dog bounties and others to eradicate. There is one more um, paragraph there though, Andy, but it kind of highlights again this the purity of the dingo. Mm. Um, a, a dingo is a wild dog, is a, is a dingo. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you've got people saying, okay, let's preserve the dingo, um, but then you can kill the wild dogs. And it's, you, you kind of can't have both. It's a bit of insanity happening there by the sounds of it. Well, it is. <laughs> and and, and I, I know in conversations that I've had with people um, like Arian Wallach and, yeah. and, and Adam O'Neill in Queensland and Nick Papali in Western Australia that. This whole notion of an entirely purebred race of dingoes being able to be isolated and, and expanded and etc., it's a complete furphy. It, it, it doesn't exist anymore. Other uh, domesticated dogs have interbred with dingoes in different areas around the country for such a long time now that it is impossible to, to determine what is and what isn't a purebred in that respect. And, and in particular, in this, what you're talking about before, with this whole bounty situation, this hunting of them, mm. and, and I liken it to, to duck shooting. You know, there's this whole, how do you expect someone who is shooting, they, I see a dog and they're going to go, right, there it is, bang, I've shot it, right? They don't sit there and go like, there's, there's no um, shadow test, I guess, like, you know, they have for duck hunters, you know, where they're, they're supposed to be able to identify all these different native species from a shadow that's like written in a book. Oh yes, yes you know, that's a, that's a blue wing shoveler or whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah. You know, that's an absurdity in itself, but they're expecting these people to be able to identify what is supposedly a purebred dingo versus a hybrid dingo from a distance and take out the one that isn't. It, it's like it's an absurdity yeah. itself. I mean, I don't think. I wonder whether they actually run through this and talk about it amongst themselves and understand how absurd it sounds to yeah, themselves. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, I'm not an ecologist and I'm not a professional in that area, but I just think that from from the people we've spoken to, it is yeah, there may well be purebred dingoes out there. I'm not sure, mm. but as I understand it, the ecological role, yes, yeah. sort of, the, of um, a wild dog can be the dingo ecological role. So therefore. Disturbing that social pack structure is is not doing the environment any favours whatsoever because they're looking no. after the the environment. No, so, because when they're in that situation, yeah. regardless whether they're hybrid or purebred, they're still growing up in that familial hierarchy. They're still learning the the, you know, the, the behavioural traits that that particular pack has. You know, and in in what you can hunt, and what you can't hunt, what's left alone, what you take out, and like you said before, things like they, they are. 
the single most effective control over supposedly what we call feral cats and, and, and other animals that are supposedly taking out other native species. They're the best system of control that we have. They, they are. If they're respected in their social pack structures, they can, they can manage all those populations, feral populations that we're... Um you know, having to spend a lot of money on and, and, and killing or reducing their numbers. Mm. Yeah, we could talk for hours about this <laughs> anyway. So I'll just finish with this, um, Mr. Quatermain from Humane um, Society International. The same selection processes that led to the evolution of the dingo are still acting on hybrids today. And we qu- quickly see dingo traits and characteristics assert themselves in these animals Indiscriminate killing programs don't just hurt pure dingoes, they hurt the entire ecosystem thrown out of balance when you start shooting the apex predator. Victoria took a very positive step in 2008 by listing the dingo as a threatened species, but any move to bring back a dog bounty would be in stark contrast to this. For the good of the environment and dingo conservation, it simply must not happen. And we should ban 1080 while we're at it, shouldn't we? Because that's just an incredibly cruel, uh, cruel poison. I've got another... Quick news announcement. I think we've got plenty of news time. News item, is that yeah, all right? Absolutely. Um, look, again, it's. I'm going to read the voiceless comment about an article that was in The Guardian, um, again, just about a week and a half, two weeks ago. Now, The Guardian reported that there were over 4,000 severe breaches of animal welfare regulations over the past two years at British slaughterhouses. Now, these breaches range from one-off abuse to cases of entire truckloads of animals dying in extreme weather conditions. Now, the voices comment around that was, alarmingly, the reports also detailed uh, instances where pigs and chickens were boiled alive during the slaughter process. Now, Australian slaughterhouses are similar to the UK systems, Mm. They are designed and operated to kill the greatest number of animals as quickly and as cheaply as possible. Each year, over 600 million animals are kept on Australian factory farms and it is virtually impossible to govern how every single one of them will be treated on farm and eventually killed in slaughterhouses. So the article, whilst difficult to read, is an important indictment of the realities of the farming production line. Now, I will did post it on our Facebook page, but I'll, I'll post it with this mm. this um, podcast page as well. Because yes, it's a hard one to read. But guys in Australia, yeah. um, it's I mean, when you look at the production line, and literally you've got workers in there that have to kill every I don't know twelve seconds, fifteen seconds. It's frightening, it's isn't it? Be accident. It's such yeah. an extraordinary number of lives. Mm. It's. Uh, it's, it, I'm flabbergasted, actually, at the numbers. I mean, I always knew, I guess, that you know, look, they were in the in the hundreds of thousands. But when you sit there and you hear that raw data, it really brings it home to you just how shocking it all is. Mm. Well, now, just, now they've got the data. You know, four thousand severe breaches. Yeah. Severe breaches. That's yep. in the UK system. Of course, you're going to have it here. Where I think we're the highest. Uh, meat consumption country per are. capita or something. Yeah, so, I think we are. Yeah. And, and, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, when these workers are in a situation where they have to put such large numbers through, animal welfare concerns are obviously going to go straight out the door mm. yeah, because it's all about let's just get those numbers through. Let's just get it done. Yeah, yeah. Just terrible. and And workers working under high pressure. Absolutely. Nothing against them. Um, they, yeah, they're sometimes very casual 
workers as well, someone four seven one visas or whatever they are. Yeah. So yeah. Any other? Oh, news have I got time for? It's an Alpine. It's a press release sent through by Australian Brumby Alliance. I'll just quickly go through it. So, as you know, we're dealing with another introduced species, mm-hmm. uh, the Alpine Brumbies, used as scapegoats. And I'll just read a bit of the press release. Uh, the ABC Gippsland. Uh, 5th September, reported claims made by the Environment Minister, Lily D'Ambrosio, that thousands of Brumbies are causing damage in the Victorian Alps. The latest count of 2,350 Brumbies in the Victorian Alps is tiny compared to feral pigs, deer and rabbit numbers. Brumbies do not fall every year, but pigs, deer and rabbits have annual multiple births. Um, So basically she's, I'll just skip a few lines, but the Brumby, they're saying, has become an easily visible scapegoat. Mrs. Miss D'Ambrosio claims also that many are inbred. Is this based on advice from Parks Victoria? Brumbies are known and valued for robust genetics. A report to the New South Wales Minister for the Environment, 2002, into the genetic viability of Guy Fawkes River National Park. Brumbies concluded... On a scale going from zero, no breeding to 100% complete inbreeding, Guy Fawkes horses have a score of 5%, so virtually no inbreeding. The minister adds that many of them are starving, which is amazing, especially as a photo supplied by Parks Victoria to accompany the minister's claims show healthy brumbies, no ribs showing and mares with foals. It is well known that starving horses cannot produce a foal as their reproductive organs shut down. Do I have more time or I should get skedaddling? Um, we probably should. Yeah, um, all right. So anyway, that's I'll put that on our Facebook page as well. But it's basically, yeah, guys, it brings us back to Fiona's talk. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'd like to thank um, Fiona proven um for that. And if you'd like to contact us, please do on info at freedomofspecies.org, Twitter or Facebook or via the website. And thanks for tuning in. Today, you've been listening to Freedom of Species. Um, my name's Andy Medic, and I thank you for having the patience to sit through this first show. And I thank Emma so much for helping me run the um, the vagaries of the electronic system here. Um, now, I have got there's a little bit of music that we can play at the end here to take us out. Okay. What are we playing? Um, this looks like it's Wilco. Okay. And I'll just click onto that and turn the microphones off. And thank you very much, everybody. And we'll see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.